Ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. Welcome to another episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Joining us today is Daily Maverick journalist Michelle Banda to help us make sense of it all. Here's what's coming your way. The Usindiso inquiry continues and it highlights the city of Joburg's many failings. It was a man-made disaster. There are a lot of key issues at play and it's not like the city of Johannesburg was not aware of this thing happening. The death of an 11-year-old boy shines the spotlight on unfinished building projects across the country. Then, a feel-good update on a story that left many of our followers seeing red. And Conservation News reminds us what we are capable of if we work together. But first, it's the dreaded budget week, where we are given a sobering overview of the country's finances. However, if the ANC's recent comments on load shedding and state capture are anything to go by, it seems we are very much on our own. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to your first Whole Week Wrap for 2024. How has the year been treating you so far? Thank you for having me. The year so far looks promising. So far, so good. Lovely. That's what I love to hear. So let's kick things off with the budget speech. I mean, this is, of course, it's budget week with all eyes on Finance Minister Enoch Godongwana as he delivers his 2024 budget speech. PwC released its budget predictions as it does every year. And there are some sobering elements. For one, the GDP growth forecast is a lackluster 0.9%, which isn't really a lot to celebrate. And then there's also the focus on underperforming state-owned enterprises and we have municipal debt and kind of the big question really from what I took from the PwC report is really that it all depends on how government responds to the financial and economic problems that we face. So what are some of the points you will be listening out for this week? From a personal perspective, what I'm looking out for, the one that affects my pocket directly would be the personal income tax and marginal tax rates. I need to know how much they'll be taking from my salary because that is important. Life is expensive. But also on the energy crisis, which is not just a personal problem, but it's a shared problem because I feel like it's affecting most of our daily life and how we work and how we schedule ourselves. We need to get an understanding if we are at the near end of the problem and if there's a budget allocated to deal with the problem once and for all. Also, there are other things such as carbon taxes and syntax and VAT on certain mm. products. I think those matter because they also affect you in your daily life and what you do and what you purchase or what services you're getting. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people also are going to keep an eye on the syntax because that's kind of the big talking point every year. And then the other one, you've just mentioned the, the carbon tax, but there's also a bit of a positive note that, that some analysts are looking at saying that in terms of the motor vehicle industry, there could be some plus points for them in terms of 
subsidies if they meet certain carbon targets, which I think is a move in the right direction in terms of our climate change goals. But I also want us to quickly reflect on some comments made by ANC representatives this past week that have quite frankly left many South Africans seething. And it's, of course, regarding the SONA debate last week, and it really showcased a ruling party that's either one, completely out of touch with what's really happening on the ground, or two, they simply don't care. I'm referring to, in this instance, Deputy Chair of the National Council of Provinces, Sylvia Lucas's statement that, quote, load shedding isn't the end of the world. I found it quite ironic because Ramaphosa said something along the lines of the issues of load shedding are nearing, like it's towards the end of it. And then a few minutes after that, ESCOM announced that we're on stage six. So I'm a bit puzzled, but it seems as though the NC at this point doesn't really care about its people, whether it affects us. In fact, I didn't find anything interesting or anything new from the SONA itself. Instead, he was just taking stock of what his administration has done. It was like he was never cognizant of what his administration has not done or how it has affected the people. It was all about gloating about what they've done. You know, it's like they're not in touch with the real issues or they're just being ignorant about it. The ANC thinks that, you know, if we just deny that load shedding is bad and we keep repeating that enough times, then people might start believing us and therefore we'll win the elections again. I mean, if you just look at small businesses that have closed down, families that have lost entire livelihoods because they simply couldn't afford to keep their businesses running, even large institutions such as ShopRite, Pick and Pay, Checkers, who pay millions of rands just to keep the generators going. But to keep those generators going, they in turn have to unfortunately dismiss workers who desperately need that income. So saying it's not the end of the world, I'm sorry, it is definitely the end of the world for many South Africans on many levels. You have hospitals that struggle to keep things going. I think South Africans have reached their limits in terms of how much they can take from the ANC. And I think we're in for a very interesting election season. Last week, the Commission of Inquiry into the deadly fire at the Usindiso building in Johannesburg heard testimonies from city officials. It became clear that since 2018, very little was done to address the worsening living conditions at Usindiso, and building hijackers were essentially given free reign at the building that would ultimately claim the lives of more than 70 people. Michelle has been reporting on this matter since the day of the fire, and she takes us through the latest developments. This is a story you've been following very closely, the Marshalltown fire. Last week, we heard further testimony at the Usindiso inquiry from some of the victims who either lost loved ones in the fire or suffered injury. We had an individual come forward admitting that he started the fire in an attempt allegedly to cover up a crime that he committed. But could you tell us a bit more about what the inquiry has revealed in recent days? So a lot has come to light at the inquiry. I think we, at first we we're taking the story from face value and not understanding the depth or the anatomy of it. So there was a lot that came up, particularly from the residents' testimonies. There were a lot of people actually living in the building, not just 
from the five flows that are named, but there were sheikhs. We are told that there were sheikhs, about 200 of them, in addition to other rooms made of mm. brick and mortar. And those rooms that were also made of brick and mortar were sublet and they were divided also with boxes and other stuff to be other rooms. It was just a lot of population, a lot of people in one space. But also we're hearing that on the actual day of the fire, the emergency services were called and they were there from 12. However, the two trucks that arrived first did not have water. The other one said the hydrants were not working. They had to wait for other trucks which came about 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, as you've just said, you know, they had these makeshift rooms and I can only imagine the amount of flammable building materials that were used that just literally caused this this fire to spread at a blinding speed. So there, there was just a lot counting against the fire department and the people living in the building at the time. It was pretty much a death trap, so to speak. It was because ahead of this 200 shakes that were put inside the building, the 180 shakes on the ground level and the 20 others on other floors, the councillor, councillor X, had initially told the people that actually the building is not as strong. It could collapse any time. However, he still also allowed for those shakes to be erected within the building. It was a man-made disaster. There are a lot of key issues at play, and it's not like the city of Johannesburg was not aware of this thing happening because we are told that the city came to collect garbage every week. We are told that the city provided mobile clinics, and we are told that initially there was electrical connections that were proper, that were legal. However, over time, because of rates that were not paid, the city had to cut off. However, when they wanted a reconnection, they would contact someone who works within city power to actually fix it for them. So for me, it's like they knew about this. They saw the building transforming from being a shelter to being what it was prior to the fire. And any idea what will happen to the Usain Diesel building? They have not really said or came out to say this is what we will do to the building. However, I'm aware that the building has been closed down so that no one else can access the building because they said it's unstable. It can collapse at any time. Has there been any movement in terms of providing the families with proper housing because the last time we spoke about this particular topic, we looked specifically at the shacks that these families were put in and how there's no running water. It's just a horrible, horrible place to stay at. It doesn't seem like they have a plan as to where they will place them. And as you know that when they were removed from the Hofland shelter in Base Valley, only a few fire victims from Usindiso made it to those sheikhs in Denver. Whilst most of them, they're either still living in other shelters like the Wembley one with their tents or the other ones there in Lindela. The living conditions in Denver haven't changed. When it rains... People complain that the rain comes into their homes and they can't sleep anywhere. It's it's still it's still a situation that has not been dealt with properly. Sometime last month, the city manager said that they are trying their best to find ways to deal with the situation, but it's becoming an humanitarian issue. On Saturday, the 10th of February, 11-year-old Luyanda Pakati died after being pushed into a flooded trench at an unfinished social housing project in Watville on the East Rand. 
Local ward councillors and community members have voiced their concerns about this unsecured construction site for years as criminals gradually turned the incomplete buildings into a dangerous hub of drugs and violence. Michelle spoke to Luyanda's devastated family and found that even this tragedy was not enough for authorities to act. Now, another story you recently published left me absolutely heartbroken. And unfortunately, it's not a unique story. It's called A Mother's Grief. And it tells the story of an 11-year-old boy that died in a flooded trench at an incomplete social housing project in Watville. Firstly, how did you come across this story? I'm from the East Rent. So I found it in one of the Watville groups. And I decided, let me pursue it because it's not just an isolated situation. There's so many like that uh, that I can even name now that have happened of social projects that are incomplete. And I thought it would be good that I do it and put it in the front of people's eyes when they they start even voting, they think about this government and what it's doing to its people and its communities. So the place is called Herikwala. Initially, it was an informal settlement. So what happened was in 2017, this project was introduced to the community. They asked the community to move to the other side of the road so that they were able to build these social housing units. And they were told that these social units would be completed in two years. That was in 2017. However, the project only kick-started in June 2018. At some point, they said that the contractor that was there was dismissed because he was they were being dishonest. And another contractor came on board after a long period of waiting. Within that period, it was abandoned. And then COVID happened until this contractor was reappointed According to the ward councillor, it has become like a place where kids, they just go and play there. The kids that are on drugs, they go and smoke from that area. And when you walk around the area, there's a lot of trenches that were left open. So when it rains, these trenches are filled with water. Kids would go there and swim. It was the first time that Luanda Pagati went to this place with his friends and he was pushed into that trench with water. It is believed that he drowned. When we went there, the, the area where it happened, it was still not fenced. Yeah, it's, it's just going to remain the same probably despite this tragic event until there's some accountability. This story also speaks to a story we recently did on an unfinished building project. This was a private project, not government, in the very heart of Stellenbosch, where two students died after crashing into a then flooded hole in the ground, essentially. They call it a quarry, but let's be honest, it was just a hole in the ground. It's titled Stellenbosch Death Trap on the Carte Blanche website, but it definitely shows that these unfinished projects are way more than just an eyesore in a community. It has deadly consequences a lot of the time. But I'm looking forward to seeing your updates on this story. Hopefully the family can find some closure and justice as well for their little boy's death. That's if justice exists. In December 2015, investigative journalist Sabelo Skiti stumbled across a trail of devastation left by well-known lawyer Zuko Nongluba. Zuko would reach out to the families of children born with disabilities and promise them massive medical negligence payouts from the Department of Health. 
However, instead of helping these families, he would claim the millions of rands in payouts for himself, leaving the families in dire straits. Now, after nearly a decade, some families are finally getting what is owed to them. Then, a report on conservation efforts not only emphasizes the urgency with which we need to act, but also reminds us that there's still so much good in the world if we just work together. Now, onto our green shoots. The Carte Blanche team has been following this story for years, and we are thrilled to finally see some positive movement on the whole Zuko Nonuba matter. Last week, the Legal Practice Council, or LPC, issued a notice requesting victims of Nonuba to come forward and contact them as they are now finally able to release some of the funds owed to them. I mean, this is a massive step forward for the families of disabled children and a huge win. We are so happy to see that there's finally movement on this and that the families get what is owed to them. I think it's quite a, a remarkable story and having had the new developments, it's, it's, it, it makes me feel at ease, at least justice is being served to an extent. But yeah. is it enough? It would be great to see Nongluba being prosecuted eventually, but at this point we know that a lot of the families featured in our stories desperately need any additional funding. So this money is definitely going to change lives. And it's also, it's very rare for us, especially in our industry, to see an investigative story have some resolution to it. So this is definitely something worth celebrating. Then another thing that I want us to celebrate is some good news on the conservation front. A recent report titled The State of the World's Migratory Species painted a stark picture as it saw a decline in the number of various bird, reptile, animal and fish species globally. But, and this is the green shoot, mm -hmm. it has also shown how when humanity works together, entire species can make a comeback. 14 species have shown a slight increase in numbers as a direct result of conservation efforts. It really shows us what we can do as humanity if we really just work towards a common goal. You know, good things can happen. Certainly they can happen. It starts with each and one of us. We have to educate ourselves on how we can conserve more and better because over time we would end up just being humans and eating each other. <laughs> we'll have a zombie apocalypse on our hands. <laughs> yes. Well, that's all we have time for this week, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you. Have a lovely week. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. 